So over the last couple weeks and for several weeks to come, uh, we've been looking through the book of Hebrews and studying the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews, it's an interesting book, and what the writer of the book of Hebrews is doing is he is trying to convey the truth to these new believers that Christ is better. Well, well, Christ is better than what? Well, Christ is better than anything. But these believers, they had received uh, this letter. They were, they were growing weak in their faith because the pressures of the world were kind of weighing down on them. Some of them were dealing with persecution. Some of them were dealing with trial. Some of them were dealing with bitterness and anger. Some of them were dealing with confusion. And so they were seeking kind of refuge and hope and help and all these other things. And so the writer of Hebrews, who we don't know who the writer is, the human author, but we know that God gave us this letter. So what God is trying to teach these, these young Christians is that no matter what they're facing, Jesus is better than all of it. And so it's a huge issue that we struggle with today. The, the, the issues of life, pain, heartache, difficulty, they can keep us from growing in Christ. They can keep us from growing in God the way we're supposed to. And in the middle of all the troubles we face, in the middle of all the trials we face, in the middle of all the burdens we carry, Jesus is better. Jesus is all that we need. And so we come to chapter number three, and the author is, is attacking something that every one of us deal with from time to time. He's attacking unbelief. And so in these, these early Christians were showing unbelief that Christ was better than what they were facing or better than what they were chasing. And when, when sin entered into the world in the Garden of Eden, it did so in the form of unbelief. Of course, we all know the story. Uh, when Eve ate of the, of the forbidden fruit, she chose to do so because she believed what Satan said over what God said. Of course, God, when he created the Garden of Eden, he had Adam. He told Adam, you can freely eat of, of every tree in the garden, but this one tree, don't eat it, because the day you do, you're going to die. And so Eve is created. Adam tells Eve, hey, you know, we can do anything we want to. We can eat any fruit we want to. We can, we can you know, the, the whole world is ours, but there's just one tree that God said if we eat of it, we're going to die. So let's just, let's stay away from that. And so Satan comes to Eve and says, do you really believe that God said that? That doesn't sound like a very loving God. Why would a loving God keep something from you? Why would a lo loving God put restrictions on you? Why would a loving God put something in the garden that could hurt you? So, you know what, are, are you sure that it's dangerous, or do you think God's just keeping something from you? And so Eve, she believed the lie of Satan. Or to say it another way, she didn't believe the word of God. She had unbelief. That's the same problem that plagued Israel throughout their history. It's the same problem that plagues us today. The fundamental flaw of sin is that it, that it, the fundamental flaw of sin causes in our lives is it makes us lean towards unbelief. It leads us to have the tendency of unbelief. We know the truth of the Bible that it teaches, but we have a hard time believing they're actually true. Or typically what happens is we don't believe they're true for us. They're true for everyone else, but just not for me. And that's unbelief. 
That's doubting God. We know the Bible says all things work together for our good, but we, we struggle believing that when we're in the middle of a battle. We know the Bible says God will never leave us nor forsake us, but we struggle believing that when we feel all alone. And so we battle with unbelief. And so in Hebrews 3, God addresses this issue head on. So look at Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse number 12. The Bible says, take heed, brethren. No, he's speaking to Christians here. It says, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold to the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. So tonight as we, we continue studying through the book of, of Hebrews, we're going to see the symptoms of unbelief. We're going to see the cure for unbelief. And then we're going to see the community of believers. So first of all, let's number one, look at the symptom of unbelief. Again, look at verse number 12. Take heed, brethren. Now the writer says take heed. The word take heed there in the Greek, it literally means to watch, to be careful. He is telling brothers and sisters in Christ to watch for danger, to watch out when they're walking with God. What were they supposed to be careful of? What danger was facing them? He says, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. To God, unbelief is evil because it's, it's, it's lack of faith. And anything, the Bible says, anything that's not done in faith is sin. Anything we do not believing God is sin. The Bible says we cannot please God without faith. So that's pretty clear. But understanding the context of the verses gives us a richer understanding of what's really going on in these verses. So in the previous verses in Hebrews chapter 3, the writer is quoting Psalms chapter 93, which was written during a very important time in Israel's history. So look back at uh, chapter number 3, look at verse number 7. It says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if you will hear this voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Now Psalms 95 was written during the events that occur in Numbers chapter 14. We're not going to read Numbers chapter 14. I'm going to tell you the story behind Numbers chapter 14. During this time, Israel was on the cusp of entering the promised land. They'd been in Egypt for slavery for 400 years. God had come to Moses in the burning bush in the wilderness and said, I want you to go and lead my people out. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and comes before Pharaoh and says, God has said, let my people go. And Pharaoh refused. And so God sent the plagues. And man, it starts with turning the water, the Nile into blood. And Pharaoh says, you can go. Then changes his mind. And just plague after plague, they sent frogs and lice and pestilence and, and boils and fire from heaven and all kinds of these things to try to break the will of Pharaoh, the heart of Pharaoh. And finally, God sends the Passover, the death angel, 
And so this is a Passover festival where God tells him, I'm going to send the death angel through. He's going to kill the firstborn son in every household. And every Jewish household uh, would take a lamb and they would sacrifice that lamb and put the blood on the doorposts. And then when the death angel came through that night, it passed over the house of Israel. But every firstborn son in Egypt was killed. Woke up dead that morning, and so Pharaoh wakes up. His son is dead. He's heartbroken, and he comes to Moses. Comes to him, and Pharaoh says, "Take whatever you want and just get out." So Israel ransacks Egypt. They take gold and silver and jewels and all kinds of stuff, and they're leaving Egypt. And they saw God do an incredible miracle to deliver them from Egypt. But then, of course, they come to the Red Sea. And here comes Pharaoh's army. God has turned the heart of Pharaoh, and so Pharaoh's army comes bearing down on him. And so they're surely about to die. But, but what does God do? Well, he puts a pillar of fire between Israel and Egypt, protecting them. Then he blows all night long, and they wake up in the morning, and the Red Sea is parted, and it's dry ground. And so Israel, 303 million strong, march through the Red Sea while God has a pillar of fire protecting them. And when they get to the other side, God lets the fire go down. Egypt comes through the Red Sea and Israel looks and sees as God collapses the Red Sea and destroys all of the Egyptian army. They sing praises to God. They're rejoicing. Man, it's amazing. They're rejoicing to God. They start marching towards Mount Sinai. And about a day in, they look at Moses and say, we're thirsty. We're thirsty. How dare you bring us here to die in the wilderness? Just saw God work miracles, but they're mad because they, they don't have a water bottle. So what does God do? He gives them water from the rock. Provides every one of those three million people, plus their cattle, plus their sheep, plus everything else, water as they're traveling to Mount Sinai. They go to Mount Sinai. They see the presence of God on top of the mountain. Of course, there's a little rebellion down there where they make up some, some false gods. And what does God do to them? He opens up the earth and swallows those people who rebel straight into hell. Man, they, yeah, they're seeing some miracles of God. They march through the wilderness towards Jordan, get in some battles. God delivers them. A group of slaves defeat some powerful armies. And they finally get to the Jordan River. And they say, before we go in, we got to see what it's like. So they send in 12 spies, one from every tribe. They go in, spy out the land. The tribes come back. Eight of, ten of them, or send in ten spies, I'm sorry. Eight of them come back and say, hey, you know what, there's... The people in the land, they're, they're tall. You know, during this time, they were like, you know, five foot three with a tall guy. And they're like, these people, they're like six foot two. They're giants. They're like NBA players. We can't, we can't beat them. And so, like, the people are too big. The land is too good. We, we cannot take it. Two of them, Caleb and Joshua, say, you know, yeah, there's, there's big dudes in there, but we got God. Yeah, they've got giants in the land, but... God just wiped out Pharaoh's army with his breath. Yeah, they've got big guys in there, but, but God's taking care of us up to this point. We are sure God will take care of us. But the rest of Israel and those eight spies, they rebel and say there's no way we could do it. And so they start murmuring against Moses. They start murmuring against God. They start demanding that they get new leaders to take them back into slavery in Egypt. And so God, for the only time in the Old Testament, calls Israel evil. He says, your unbelief is evil. And because they doubted him, God says, that generation that I let out of Egypt, except Caleb and Joshua, will never see the promised land. 
they doubted what God was doing. So because of their unbelief, God banishes that generation that he led out of the promised land, out of Egypt into the promised land. He says, because they harden their heart, they will never be allowed to enjoy the fulfillment of the promise of God. And Hebrews chapter 3 says that the people that God saw bring them out of, e the pillar, out of Egypt, the people that saw God lead them with the pillar of fire uh, by night and the pillar of smoke by day, the people that saw the power of God ended up missing what God had for them because of their unbelief. If anyone should have had no trouble believing God, it was that generation of Israelites. If anyone should have said, hey, we just crossed the Red Sea, what's a little river? Let's go out of there, let's, let's take the land God had. If anyone should have believed God, it was that generation. So what Hebrews 3 is telling us is if they can fail, we better be careful because we can fail too. If that generation that saw the power of God so vividly displayed in their life, if they could get to the point where they said, I don't think God's big enough to take care of us, we better be careful because we can fail, of have the son of unbelief as well. That's why in verse 12 the writer says, take heed, be careful, watch your step, because anyone can fall victim to the sin of unbelief. God is warning us not to do exactly what Israel did. And because sin is deceitful, you don't recognize when your heart is becoming hard to God. That's the biggest danger of sin. It creeps in slowly. Until you get to the point where your heart's hardened against God, you're struggling with unbelief, you're out of the will of God, you're not even walking with God, and you don't even know how you got there because little by little by little, sin crept into your life. So what does an evil, unbelieving heart lead to? The Bible says it leads to falling away from God. Look at verse number 12 again, the last part of verse number 12. It says, Take ye, brethren, let's deliver any, any uh, of you, you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. This means falling away from God. It literally means to become an apostate, to actively reject God. He's, talking, he's not talking to the unsaved crowd. He's not talking to the liberal crowd. He's not talking to Hollywood and politicians. He's talking to believers. People who have accepted Christ as their Savior, who have dedicated their life to God. He said, hey, be careful, because if you're not careful, you can get to the point where you're actively rejecting God. Now, I'm talk, I know I'm talking to the Sunday night crowd. You know, the best of the best are here on Sunday night. You're all thinking, well, there's no way I could ever get there. But I've seen it in too many people, too many good Christians that I've known for years are suddenly out of the will of God, out of the service of God, doing nothing for God. Why? Because they actively rejected God, and it started with the sin of unbelief creeping into their hearts. Unbelief leads to a heart that actively rejects God. God has given us a huge warning against unbelief. We need to understand how we get from Israel believing God to cross the Red Sea to Israel doubting God can take him across the Jordan River. We need to know where we get to a place of believing God and trusting God and serving God to a place of rejecting God. What does that look like? It's a process that takes us from the presence of God. But how does it go? It always starts, number one, with doubt. Doubting God will be faithful. Doubting that Jesus is really better than anything else you're facing. 
Doubting that if you pay your tithe, God's going to take care of you like he said. Doubting that God really cares about your sin. Because let's, let's, let's face it, you can sin, and the chances are you're not going to be struck by lightning. I don't, I mean, if you sin, God probably will not just zap you dead right then and there. I've never, now I'm not saying you're not going to get struck by lightning. I mean, that's a very rare t- chance to happen, but you, you can sin and all of a sudden the fire of God doesn't come down and you think, hey, d- does God really care? Is God really concerned about me? He's got bigger things to deal with. He's got to keep the world running. He's got to make sure that Russia and America don't destroy the world with nuclear bombs. He's got, he's got bigger fish to fry than me. And so it's doubting that God really cares about your sin. Doubting that there are really any consequences for living for yourself. The first step about rationalizing your sin is doubting what God says about it. So unbelief starts first with doubt. Second step in that is fear. When you start doubting God, fear comes next. But it's not fear of God. Because things you used to trust God for, things you would have trusted God for, you are now uncertain about. Because you doubt God's going to do it. So things that God was providing and you trusted God to take care of, now you have to take care of it. Now you've got to do, you've got to do what's got to be done. You've got to be the boss. You've got to take care of everything. And so anxiety begins to control your life. What should have been a blessing, the promised land for Israel, became anxiety for them. They should have had the blessing. They should have gone into the land where they're battling the promised land. Yes. They had to fight the battles. They had to get rid of the people that live there. But God said, that's the land that I've given you. There's blessings there. There's, there's protection there. There's provision there. There's milk and honey there. And so God said, it's going to be a blessing for you. But because of their doubt, it became a, play, a, a, section, a, a place of anxiety. Fear is believing God is not in control, and it comes from doubt. Next step is doubt, fear, then pride. Since you don't believe God will take care of you, you begin to come up with your own plans to do the things he's promised. Soon you think your ways are better than God's ways. And so you start to refuse to obey God in those areas of your life. And Israel... They outright said no to God. They refused to obey God. They said they knew better and they wanted different leaders to take them back to Egypt because they knew better than God. Their pride took them even further from God. So it starts with doubt, then fear, then pride, and then it ends with isolation. You cut yourself off from God and his people. When Adam and Eve sinned, the first thing they did was hide from God. They isolated themselves from God out of shame. Shame from sin causes us to hide from God. We stop praying. We stop reading our Bibles. We stop going to church. We stop walking with God. Why? Because of shame. And we isolate ourselves. And that is a dangerous place to be. It's dangerous to be where you run from God because eventually you get numb to God's leading and numb to the Spirit's conviction. Sin wants to keep you alone and in secret. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He said, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. 
and the more deeply he becomes involved in it. The more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. So what are we to do? Satan, he uses unbelief as his primary weapon to fight against us. The writer has an answer. First of all, we see the sentence of unbelief. Then let's look at the cure for unbelief. Look at verse number 13. <clears throat> but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast until the end. So how does the, the writer tell us to get back to a place of belief? He says, first of all, hold firm to the gospel. That's a, there's very intentional language choice of the author of Hebrews. He uses to talk about how we are to live every day for Jesus. He says, hold fast to what we believed at the beginning. He says, what you believed at the beginning, what you started out believing, hold firm to the gospel. He is telling us the importance. And then he, can, he starts off by saying that we do this by exhorting one another. Now, I'm gonna, we're going to focus on that in a little bit. But he's telling us the importance of being involved in a community of believers that help us stand firm and to, and, uh, to, to fight unbelief. To hold firm requires us actively making a choice to do so. You don't stay close to God on autopilot. You can't do it. You have to every single day, and let's be honest, you have to multiple times a day make a choice to stay close to God. You have to make a choice to hold firm to the beliefs of the gospel. You have to be focused on holding firm every moment to what the writer calls the beginning of our confidence. The beginning of our confidence is the gospel. It is the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to reconcile us to God the Father. The writer is pointing back to the empty tomb. He's saying, that is what your confidence is in. Your confidence isn't in your situation. Your confidence isn't in your talents. Your confidence isn't in anything else. Your confidence at the beginning was in the empty tomb, and it needs to stay in the empty tomb if you're going to hold firm to the gospel. He's saying, hold to that. He is your redeemer. He is your substitute. He gave us the greatest display of love the world has ever seen through his sacrifice. The innocent Christ took the punishment that was owed the guilty sinner and gave the guilty sinner the reward that was due the innocent. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness, and now we are a child of God. And he says, when doubt comes, hold firm to that. When unbelief starts to creep in, hold Hold firm to that. Focus on that. Think on that. Filter your decisions through it. Filter your relationships through it. The cure for unbelief is to focus on the gospel. But then he tells us a third thing. He gives us the community of belief. There are, there are two commands in verse number 13. Consider Jesus. Remember Jesus. Hold firm to the gospel and do it with other believers in community. Let's read it again. But exhort one another. How many, how often? All right. Exhort one another? Daily. Did he say every Sunday? No? 
He say exhort everybody, exhort one another in Sunday school and Sunday night and Wednesday night? No. He said exhort one another daily. Who do you, who do you talk to daily? People you do life with. People that are, are, that, that are close to you. And look, we all need family that we, can, we talk to daily and encourage us daily and, and can keep us on track daily. But we need more than just family. We need friends and other believers that we can daily exhort each other through. So how do we do that? He says, we are to exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We are to exhort one another. We are created to live in community. We are created to do life together. To live in isolation is misery. It's true for everyone, and it's been true from the very beginning. At the, you read the creation story. First day, God's creating all these things. He creates the light, it's good. He creates earth, it's good. He creates animals, it's good. Everything's good. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. The only thing God ever said wasn't good was the fact Adam was alone. He said everything's good, but that situation. Adam needs a partner. Adam needs someone he can do life with. So he gave him Eve, and then he said it is very good. And then, of course, as always, women messed it up. Amen. But so he made Eve, and it was very good. Why? Because Adam had a partner. Adam had someone he could have community with. with. There's a couple reasons that we need community. First one, community breaks through sin's deception. That's the whole point of verse number 13. Here's what he's saying. Listen up. Here's what he's saying. Every one of us here has blind spots. How many truck drivers we have in here tonight? How many truck drivers we have in here tonight? David. <laughs> we got three. Kenneth? And now in the morning we have like 87. But y'all's trucks, they have blind spots, don't they? You ever tried to ride in a blind spot of a truck? It's not a smart thing to do. What the author's saying here is every one of us in our lives, spiritually speaking, we have blind spots. We have danger zones that we're not aware of. Israel had the presence of God with them. I mean, I, I can imagine this living in this time period where you, you, you walk out of your tent at night. Yeah, how many of y'all like looking at the stars at night? I love just going outside in my backyard and looking up at the stars and looking at the moon and just sitting in my hammock and watch. I just, I, I love it. I just love looking at the stars and seeing shooting stars. and all, It's just, I love it. And can you imagine walking out of your tent to go look at the stars and there's a pillar of fire and it's God. Where's God? He's right there in the fire. Then you wake up in the morning, have breakfast. That God provided for you, by the way. Start walking. Away. Where's God? Oh, he's the pillar of smoke that's keeping the sun's heat from us. They saw God every single day, and they still had the sin of unbelief creep in their life. They still sinned against God. They had massive blind spots in their spiritual life, and listen, so do you, and so do I. Every one of us has spiritual blind spots that we're unaware of. Having other believers in our lives allows them to see the danger zones that we can't see. It allows them to come to us and say, hey, you may not be aware of this, but there's, there's an issue in your life that I've noticed you may want to be careful of. There's a person over here that may be leading you astray. 
there's a, there's a character thing you're doing here that's, that may be leading you in the wrong path. And they can point out the danger zones to us. There may be someone here, you're being fooled by sin, and you're starting to be hardened by it. Sin is starting to harden your heart just like it hardened the Israelites' hearts. God is becoming less and less, less, and less attractive. You feel you're, you're too far gone. Apathy is beginning to reign in your spiritual life. Doubt, fear, pride, isolation is describing where you are with God. And look, if that's where you are tonight, you need to find someone, another believer, that you can run to and say, hey, I need you to look out in my life and show me the areas I can't see that are causing me to drift away from God. Find someone you can connect with, someone that you can allow into your life to help you not be deceived by sin anymore. You know, sometimes people will leave the church, and it always seems sudden. People are like someone just suddenly vanishes from church, they, they don't come back anymore. We're sitting around thinking, man, where'd that come from? It was so sudden. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Something happened maybe years ago, but before they, they, they it's happened before, and they, they didn't deal with it. They allowed it to fester. They allowed bitterness to grow. They allowed their heart to get hardened to the things of God until finally they didn't care anymore, so they just walk away from God and everything. And other believers are sitting there thinking, man, they just suddenly walked out on God. No, they didn't. They just didn't have someone who loved them enough to say, hey, there's a problem in your life, you've got to deal with it. There's a danger zone in your life you better deal with or you're going to get hardened to sin and walk away from God just like Israel did. And that's the saddest thing, is they didn't have someone in their life to tell them they were in danger. Unbelief produces pride and isolation, but the truth of the gospel produces humility and community. Every one of us needs multiple people in our lives that have the freedom to go sin hunting in your life. To look at your life and say, hey, there's some issues you need to deal with. And look, you need to have the freedom to do the same thing in theirs. Where you have the freedom, to not out of, out of gotcha, out of hate or spite, but out of love to say, hey, I love you too much to let you go down this road. There's danger ahead. You know, none of us would let our kids get it, play in the street when there's cars. Why? Because we love them. There's danger there. But we let other brothers and sisters in Christ play with sin and get away from God because we, ah, I don't want to offend them. Hebrew says you better offend them. Because if you don't, one day you're going to show up and they're gone. And God's going to look at you and say, I, gave, I put them in your life and I, I showed you that, that problem so you could help them and you, you chose not to. Every one of us need community. We need to leave our life open to people and allow them to be honest about what they find and the dangers they see. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He goes, when you confess your sin to another Christian, the expressed, acknowledged sin has lost all its power. He is no longer alone with his evil, for he has cast off his sin in confession and handed it over to God. It has been taken away from him. Now he stands in the fellowship of sinners who live by the grace of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. Now he can be a sinner and still enjoy the grace of God. He can confess his sins and his very acts find fellowship for the first time. The sin concealed separated him from the fellowship, made all his apparent fellowship a sham. The sin confessed has helped him find true fellowship with the brethren in Jesus Christ. 
Do you have that kind of fellowship with anyone? Is there someone in your life that can inspect your life and out of love say, there's an issue you have to deal with? Every one of us need that. I need that. Every, none, of us are, none of us are ever at the point where we're like, you know what? I'm good. I don't, if, if I ever get to the point where I'm like, you know what? I, I've, I've reached selling perfection. Fire me. Like immediately. If I get to the point where I'm like, you know what? None of you all have the right to look into my life. Fire me. I'm serious. Right away. Because every one of us need to, have someone, need to have a spirit where someone can come and say, hey, there's an issue I've noticed that it may not be a problem now, but it could be. And we need to have enough character to say, hey, thank you for loving me that much. And inspect that thing. So if the thought of that bothers you, then you're being deceived by sin. We need community because it breaks through sin's deceptions. We need community because community shows us how Christ is better. Participating in a healthy community of believers shows you God's faithfulness. Because if it's not through your life right now, you can see it in other people's lives that you're fellowshipping with. It's amazing to see God work in and through other believers. And when you see God take care of others, you realize God's going to take care of you just as well. When we are daily exhorting each other with the gospel, reminding each other that Christ is better, we begin to see the evidence of it. We see God's faithfulness in other people's lives, and it stirs belief in us. And we are to exalt Jesus together. We are to brag on God together. Look, we've had recently, in just the last really couple weeks, we had several stories in our fellowship of believers of God taking care of his kids, and it reminds us that he will with us too. I think of the Dennis family. I mean, they've been up here almost nine months now. Tommy came up almost nine months ago, got two jobs to looking for a house, and then what happened? He cut off his finger. Kind of a setback there. <coughs> when you don't have a finger, take, you know, you got to heal a bit, so he's out of work for a while, and they're up here looking for a place, but struggling to find work and all these things. And man, we've been praying and praying and praying. And I know some of us got sick of praying. Thinking, man, God, we've been doing this for nine months. Are you ever going to come through? And I, I bet doubt started to creep in every once in a while. Is this really where, is this really what we're supposed to do? Because God said he'd take care of us. And look, well, just these last couple weeks, Tommy got a job at Coke, making good money, good job. They got a house they moved into yesterday, so they got to get their stuff. But what does that do? That shows us God taking care of his children. And what that does is we can look at that and say, man, isn't God great to them? And then we think, hey, well, if God's good to them, you know what? He'll probably be good to me. I think of Amy. I mean, just going through a difficult time right now. But we came, what, two weeks ago? We came to the church and said, hey, we have a need. And that the church family, got, and look, we can brag, I'm bragging on y'all. The church family got together and said, hey, let's meet this need. She needed a car. I think we got like four of them. So, I mean, just God took care of everything in an incredible way. And God used you to do it. And so we get to look and say, hey, look how good God's been to Amy. Now she's got an apartment of her own. We had a housewoman party for her now. God's taking care of her. Yes, he's using us to do it, but God's taking care of her. Man, if God takes care of her, if God takes care of them, surely God's going to take care of me. Community builds your faith in God. So where does this all begin? Look at verse 14. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold to the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Verse 14 says that we are partakers of Christ. We share in Christ. The foundation of a healthy Christian community 
is a bunch of people who are actively, daily, choosing Christ over whatever else life brings. It is choosing to interpret your life through the lens of the gospel. It is choosing to live in community with other believers. Each of us need to battle unbelief when it comes into our life, and you cannot do that alone. We need God, and we need each other. Christ is better than our unbelief. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.